Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 88. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about apologetics training and education with three recent graduates of Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, which was formerly associated with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Our three guests include Stephanie Kate Judd, who is a lawyer and researcher funded by Anglican Deaconess Ministries for research on disability and human dignity, and Lauren Roof, who is a freelance writer and editor and Claire Williams, who is the founder of Get Real, an apologetics ministry based in the UK. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Porter and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So with this episode, we are closing out our series on apologetics, and we're doing so by looking at apologetics curricula and apologetics training and apologetics education, specifically speaking with a couple of graduates of one of the largest apologetic training bodies in the world, the Oxford Center of Christian Apologetics. And of course, its association with Robbie Zacharias International Ministries is one that comes with some discomfort there. And as, and as we chatted, we got to hear about the experiences of, of studying at Robbie Zacharias International Ministries, some of the methods and some of the emphases that were, that were used and stressed at the Oxford Center. And I thought it was just a great way to kind of reflectively kind of close out our our series on on apologetics. What did you think about our conversation, Chris? Yeah, I thought it was a really uh, fascinating conversation. Um, It picked up on many of the the topics which we've been thinking about in the series so far, uh, especially thinking about uh, what apologetics looks like uh, when it isn't just about that sort of classical uh, question and answer. person on a large stage uh, doing a debate or offering, uh, as uh, Steph says, pithy or short responses to incredibly large questions, which uh, deserve far more uh, engagement. And so I think uh, it's really interesting to hear uh, from these very recent graduates. Um, so they finished their uh, time at the at OCA uh, in 2020. And they're reflecting on what they saw as a very different form of apologetics to what I think many listeners will have as a mental image, and certainly what Ravi Zacharias International Ministries uh, as well promoted as the sort of classical apologetics movement. One of the things I found really interesting was uh, within uh, this training arm for ASIM, uh, you had a very different flavor. Uh, of apologetics. Part of that, um, which comes through, is that it, it is a, a British training organization rather than an American one. Um, and there, there are cultural shifts that happen there. I also really loved um, Claire's re- reflections on what it means to be a person of color in these sort of environments and how that brings mm-hmm. a very different understanding of what apologetics is uh, and her reflections there on what 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 is truth and rationality uh, is very enlightening and um, a, a great reminder for all of us who are in, who are academics and who who are uh, st- uh, students of the word. Um, really, really, for anyone engaging in modern society, uh, about the the power and sometimes the non power of truth um, 
and truth claims in in this world. And with that, here's our conversation with Steph, Lauren, and Claire. Well, Steph, Lauren, Claire, thank you all so much for for joining us. Yeah, it's so good to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys, for the invitation. It's really good to be here. So how about we begin by hearing about what brought you all to Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, RZIM for for short. What brought you all there and what were you all studying when you were there? Uh, well, for me, John, I I was working as a commercial lawyer in banking and finance. I had an existential crisis, so I <laughs> I um, was really reflecting on the things that I care about, and I decided, well, I really care about public Christianity. I really care about the way that the gospel is presented to people that don't believe, um, kind of in a more um, policy kind of context, and. I realized the reason I wasn't doing that as much as I think I probably should have done was because I felt nervous about the gaps in my knowledge and experience. So I heard Amy or Ewing, who's one of the founders of the um, the Oxford College for Christian Apologetics, which is which is a separate organizationally separate to RZIM, which is based in the States. It's in the UK and it's the train, it's basically the training arm for RZIM. It's um important for for subsequent revelations and um, pretty substantial the bin fire that was last year for us at IM that they were organizationally separate um, but yeah so OCA which is the Oxford College for Christian Apologetics is the training arm for us at IM uh, and I went there because I heard Amy or Ewing speaking about why the gospel is good news for women and I thought that she was really compelling um, so I went and trained there for a year in 2018, um, and that's where I met Lauren and Claire. Yeah, so I would just like to echo some of Steph's sentiments. Um, I've always had an attraction towards apologetics and kind of trying to unpack um, intellectual objections to faith. I've always been kind of a thinker and into reading up on philosophy. I remember reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity in college and just being really captivated by um, the logical side of my faith. Um, And so part of the experience of going to Oxford was just one, wanting to study in a rich intellectual environment. Um, Two, uh, getting to meet people from all over the world and seeing uh, the Christian faith from many perspectives. And three, um, learning how to uh, use my writing skill as a way of kind of sharing my spirituality with other people and um, learning how to be a better communicator, I think. So, yeah, that was kind of my background in coming to ACA. Yeah, for me, I think I had a couple of years before done something called the C.S. Lewis Institute. It was the UK version where it was a discipleship course as well as um, it had an apologetic stream to it. And I loved, really, really loved the apologetic sides of um, the C.S. Lewis Institute course. And I was working, uh, I was was an assistant head teacher at the time, you know, working some mad hours in a school, um, but not not having the time or the space to really Mm. go into apologetics in the way that I wanted to. And then circumstances changed, um, finances permitted. (laughs) 
and I was able to go to study um, at Ocker 2018 as well and that was just that was yeah that's my kind of journey to it um it kind of really sprang out of my experience with the C.S. Lewis Institute and knowing this is something I want to do in, in greater depth but just um not having the time um then but yeah things change which for the better and I think that's probably a point of um difference between um our kind of um relationship with apologetics as like a discipline or an industry um I think Claire Claire you come from a background where it's actually more crucial and vital to the communities that you care about because as you've described to us a number of times there's people leaving in droves because the intellectual credibility of the faith is not something that people have confidence in whereas I think Lauren and I come from a background where well I'm I'm one of those mythical creatures known as a Sydney Anglican. We do exist in the wild. Um, and our my faith tradition comes from probably it's hyper-cognitive, it's hyper-rationalist. And so um, I came to Ocker, to Oxford, with a pretty ambivalent relationship about apologetics. I think I was, um, I actually remember one of the first conversations that Lauren and I had was walking around the Christchurch meadow, commiserating with one another, sharing sheepishly about the fact that we didn't actually like apologetics and what the heck were we doing in Oxford <laughs> studying apologetics. Um, True. True. Because I think that we were just kind of more in the vein of what we'd probably describe as like a Justin Bailey. His description of imaginative apologetics is kind of the thing that's kind of more the jam that I'm I'm vibing for and I know that Lauren's vibing for but that's because we come that's because we're embedded in a context that we think that that's the better tool to use whereas Claire's context it seems that it requires a different kind of tenor um, to the way that you engage is that fair Claire? Yeah I think that um, during the training year which um, I really did love for a number of reasons I'm sure we'll get into what emerged in some of the I don't know some of the topics that we were looking at I just started to see how um your sort of classical apologetics model or methodology didn't quite have um the answers that would be robust enough for someone from the black community so um for the listeners I'm black British my parents are Caribbean my grandparents and parents are from the Windrush generation in the UK and so let's take for instance the question does the bible condone slavery um if your if your audience is a black majority church or a black community majority community that the way that you go about structuring your argument to answer that question mm. is going to have a very different tenor. it's going to land very differently for that particular audience because um in my eyes in the eyes of many black people the legacies of that institution of slavery is still still very much alive and well to get today that, that's just an example and so what i started to see um was particularly for the questions that my community had and i have as a black woman um apologetics as a discipline i think is i think it's really good i love it that's why i'm still i'm still engaging in it and and, and have started this ministry of mine um get real the there were some kind of gaps um and i i kind of maybe had a, a larger a, a rude awakening i would say over 2020 especially with utility of your classical apologetics methodology um so we'll, we'll jump into that um sooner you've each talked about the um, curriculum at, at um ocker uh, and the 
what drew you there um, in, in various different ways. Uh, what are the areas that you really got out of it? Um, I mean, Claire, you've just been reflecting about uh, how that's been impactful upon the way that you've uh, been having conversations with your community um, since then. Uh, what are, the, what are the, the great takeaways that you've had from that? For me, I think um, one of the great takeaways is I love the fact that our tutors, speakers, whoever came to, to teach us were practitioners, you know? Um, sometimes apologetics can be a field where you have a lot of philosophers who are, you know, mm. at the desk, typing the essays, writing the journals, and that is all great work that feeds into apologetics on the ground, your, your conversational apologetics, your, your day-to-day -day sort of evangelism, if you will. But actually what I really liked was I had a lot of respect for, and I still do, of, of mm. um, the tutors who were, you know, either doing PhDs, had done PhDs, and actually you see them on a, on a university campus giving out flyers, you know? There was no sort of um, sense for, from, from, from what I saw of this, on, on a sort of a, a campus mission, we're going to fly in. You guys do that. We'll fly in and do it. It was it was very much a, a I would say quite a collegiate thing, and I I really appreciated that that um, apologetics was something for the mind, a rational exercise, but also they were they were practitioners, which I, I appreciate. Um, but in terms of the curriculum, I think that as I said, <laughs> there were just some um, questions that I think as well being. Um, a black person in, in white majority spaces, I'm just talking about in general, mm. you do occupy this sort of liminal space, a bit like um, um, Du Bois talks about, um, like his double consciousness. So when, when I see an argument that seems to be totally um, watertight, um, actually I can see how someone who is a minority might think, well, what counts as knowledge or whose truth are we talking about here? Those kind of questions that a lot of it does come from sort of your postmodern um, sort of Foucault kind of um, discourse um, and, and truth and power. But I just could see sometimes that, um, as I said, classical methodologies didn't quite hit um, or answer some of these questions. I think it's worth saying, Claire, that our cohort was probably distinct from previous cohorts that um, that Oka has had, primarily because of the absence of an American majority. So we our cohort was fairly substantialist. I think there was probably three Americans at Rat Lauren. Yeah. I think three. Mm -hmm. Whereas I know that previous cohorts has been very US dominant because people were attracted by the Rabi, the Rabi um, name whereas i i i i don't think i'd never read a Rabi book before i went to uh, it was not a big deal in australia i think that's fair to say chris do you agree yeah so my um, my first interaction with ravi was actually in indonesia um so he'd headlined a conference with john lennox in indonesia yeah. uh, and interestingly in the indonesian context and this gets what some of what you're saying claire uh, some of the more um, American style of apolog apologetic about uh, here is a, dog a dogma or here is a, a, a fact that needs to be, um, that you need to uh, adopt, you, the audience, fell quite flat in comparison to uh, his uh, stage mate, uh, John Lennox, who was also there, uh, who was very heavily relational in his approach. 
That's an interesting observation. I think I think in terms of um, the curriculum, it's probably worth describing what our week looked like. It was pretty hectic. Uh, it was, I think they described like learning by the fire hydrant hose method of um, pedagogy, which was, um, it was pretty wild. Um, so we had probably two days of classes through the university. So that was things like your basic theology, like Christian doctrine, uh, philosophy, church history. So we had two days of classes with the Oxford, like the actual university. Uh, two two full days of classes with Ocker, and there was a kind of uh, a consistent component to that, which was essentially um, every Thursday morning, for example, there was a real emphasis on formation, on character formation, which I really appreciate. And I think that this is worth pointing out um, to people that um, probably a bit arm's length from us that I am that even though character has been a thing that's blown up in the itinerant kind of um, apologist space. To their credit, the way that they teach apologetics, at least our experience, my experience, was really being, really foregrounding the importance of, it's who you are, it's not just what you say and how shiny you are when you say it. That was my experience of that, was that they were really, you know, they're saying, be, be careful. If you're gonna go into itinerant ministries, be careful, you need to subject yourself to, to a church community, to a local church community. I remember um, Sam Albury, who is who was one of the, um, the faculty on staff there, um, really foregrounded that. I remember him, I remember him saying that really clearly, and a lot of them said that as well. So you've got your, your staff members, so that's people like John Lennox, um, uh, Sam Albury, um, you know, you've got the regular uh, people that come in to speak, people like Oz Guinness, you've got people, um, who are the other speakers that came in? Like we just had this, one of the, the benefits of having um, an organisation that is, well, A, has a lot of money and B, has an international reputation is that you can attract big names to come and speak to you. Yeah, I would say that one of my favourite aspects of the whole training and the experience was the embodied teaching. It's you're in a, a like very close up and personal community. You're getting to know people who are formerly strangers um, to you becoming your family and, and people that we still talk to almost every day on a WhatsApp chat. Um, and so there's a sense of, of embodiment and, and spiritual formation and family that comes with this program and trust. Um, but also, yeah, just it's highly contextualized for what experience you want to take going forward from Oxford. So that was one of my favorite aspects of the program. It wasn't a cookie cutter evangelism program. It was, okay, you're a lawyer. Okay, you're a writer. Okay, you're a medical personnel, a business person. Here's an approach that might work for you. Or what do you think? And so it was kind of this chance to... Uh, create apologetics for our own spaces that we, because we were all there for different reasons and we're all looking for something different coming out of it. And so for me, that was one of the beautiful aspects of the program is I was able to enter as a writer and more of an artistic type who maybe doesn't love the 
you know, uh, propositional style apologetics, um, the Q and A style thing made me really nervous. I would say um, <laughs> we had to practice that on college campuses. But it was, you know, I think there was something for everyone, and I I think that is really to the organization's credit. They really were focused on giving you, um, helping you sharpen your own skill set instead of trying to make you into a particular style of theologian or or whatever you had to come there for. I think that's that's really interesting reflection in that um, often apologetics is characterized fairly or unfairly as a cookie cutter type uh, engagement. So here is the pre-potted summary that you need to know uh, from a stage. Here is um, the content. Now get on and believe it or get on and do it. And certainly I think uh, with that approach, as as you've been noting, it leaves out so much. It leaves so much on the table, if you like. Where have you have you taken that since leaving Oka? How's that been uh, playing out for each of you at in your own ministry in your own uh, work since then? I think one of the phrases that was kind of like a mantra when we were studying was um, behind every question is a questioner. So that um you're dealing with a person you're not trying to win an argument you're trying to win the person that kind of approach mm. and i think um with so much of what we've seen i think globally with the polarization of of political um leanings um polarizations in the church just massive big cultural questions going on now i've really felt challenged by that mantra to try to connect with the person behind this political ideology however much it sits well with me or not as a Christian but actually how can I reach that person and I think that kind of you could call it incarnational approach is really really important um so for me um that's been really helpful at grounding my my thinking and what I'm trying to do with apologetics and um uh the African diaspora in the UK yeah, and I think um, so. For me, I, so I work as a lawyer still. I um, I've done a, quite a lot of um, like refugee work. Um, human rights is the, is the reason that I um, went into law, and it continues to be the reason that I I practice it. Even though some days I wish I wasn't practicing law. Um, and I think that for me, one of the areas um, that I can see is coming under pressure in our common life um, in Australia, but also elsewhere and in the UK and in the States, um, the consensus around why we believe that people matter and why we believe that people have dignity um, and worth is coming under pressure because we've kind of se severed it from, from the the, the tree, we've severed the branch from the tree of, of a belief in, um, you know, people bearing the image of God and that's having flow on effects into our policy. Um, and I, so I'm a policy kind of law person. And so I really care about that and I really care about how we communicate around that. Um, and in, in one of my former lives, in my undergrad, I studied government and I did a, a, I did a dissertation looking at Christian lobbying I did it on the ACL, Chris. Yeah. For those yeah. listening on, the ACL is uh, a, a Christian lobby group here in Australia called the 
um, we are very inventive with our naming. Uh, might surprise <laughs> everyone, all the listeners, that it is called the Australian Christian Lobby. There's only one. There's only one. Did you little did you know? There's only actually one view that Christians hold about politics. I didn't realize that before before encountering them. But um, the so my my dissertation was looking at well how. How does representation, how does representativeness work when we're engaging in the political space? And I think there are, there are lots of overlaps with um, Christian witness. So public engagement, Christian witness, there's lots of points of connection. That's the reason I went to Oka um, was I was, I saw examples of it that I thought were not so good and I wanted to do it better. So um, I've been trying to do that. I've been trying to um, you know, in, in the public media, um, engage with people's, um, I guess, engage with the pressure points around we've had a, we feel like in Australia there's a thing called a Royal Commission, which is like the highest invest, investigative power that the government has in looking to problem areas. We've just had one into age, the aged care sector. Uh, and that that churned up a lot of um a lot of questions around dignity and worth um, because, you know, like everyone, we've got an aging population. Um, we've got um, not enough resources to care for the, the people that are in our residential facilities. And that's led to lots of um, cases of widespread um, abuse and neglect. And so that was a fertile opportunity to speak into that space. That's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in doing. Is speaking into those um, into those um, spaces rather than doing Q and A's on a church. Gotta love those Q and A's. Lauren loves the Q and A's. They were her favorite. <laughs> they were her favorite thing. Nothing like being put on the spot in front of lots of people. <laughs> um, well, it lends me. itself to a particular type of like shallow form of like a pithy a pithy response, which right. if you don't if you don't want to play that game it's hard to have the more thoughtful responses. Right. And a lot of these questions really are deep and expansive and don't have pithy answers. Um, so I would say in terms of practical application for my experience with ACA, at the time that I left the States, we were having quite a moment as a nation with um, a resurgence in nationalism. Christian nationalism in particular, um, with the whole Trump era. And so for me, that was pretty disconcerting and kind of, I felt that I was kind of leaving to examine, okay, what's going on in my own country? What's going on in the world? How do I talk about this with my friends who are Christians? And so there was a lot of unpacking of big questions. I think for most people that go to apologetics, um, we have our own personal questions and maybe things that we're looking to deconstruct or examine around our faith. And mm. in, in a way, it was a huge privilege to be able to do this because not many people can just set aside a year of their life to look at big philosophical questions. Um, and so for me, I kind of approached it as that year and um, I was able to gain a lot from that and examining worldviews. Um, philosophies that have influenced my faith. Um, and it kind of gave me the framework to unpack logical arguments and to spot fallacies and to see how watertight certain 
maybe cliches that I've heard my whole life are aren't about my faith. And so, um, yeah, I was able to do, we were taught how to facilitate discussions with people as one of our skill sets in communication. And I was able to do a seminar on fundamentalism at the end of the year. And that really helped clarify a lot of points of thinking for me about how to communicate with my peers coming back um, into an American context where there was a lot of dynamics that were live with politics and politics being imported into the church. And so for me, it just gave me a deeper breadth of understanding in my relationships, as well as an ability to process these things in a more informed way uh, with people that are important to me and maybe even um, in future contexts publicly. I don't have an apologetics ministry currently, but I am writing and I'm working on writing projects all the time. And so it really has taught me how to effectively examine and um, unpack ideas around God and faith. And Lauren, I think that like something that I know that we've spoken a lot about um, subsequently, but this was a live interest for you during the year that we were studying in Oxford was um, the role of mystery and imagination in how we approach knowledge. Um, and that's something that I know that you've you've written a lot about. And I, I just, one of my favourite, I think one of the things I've remembered most about that year was when Malcolm Geet, who's um, a Cambridge, he's a priest, he's a poet, um, he, he came and lectured us. And he, I remember him, for those listeners who don't, don't know him, he he is just, <laughs> he rides a motorbike, has, a, has an enormous beard, and he's a wonderfully articulate poet. And he came and he, and, he, and he read, he just walked up to the front of the classroom with a singing, a, a rain stick, one of those, you know, those, um, those things that you turn upside down and they have this rain that falls down, a musical instrument. And he read Seamus Haney's The Rain Stick, and then he read it again. And so for him, he's someone who really is convicted about the role of the imagination as a truth-bearing faculty. Um, and, you know, um, I know that he's spoken about Shakespeare's um, line that the imagination apprehends more than cool reason could ever comprehend. Like that was his flavour of things. And so in, in the course that we did, there was obviously a big emphasis on how do you answer these difficult questions about hell and sexuality and let's, let's mind map out possible responses. But there was also this offset of how do you engage culture and how do you have a posture that's open and curious um, and having people like Malcolm who are, who are trying to not necessarily give answers but ask um, to jostle the soil of the imagination. I remember him saying that line. Yeah, I remember To jostle that. the soil of the imagination so that their curiosity is enlivened and that they engage on the journey more themselves. And that's something that was, I remember one of our tutors, Tom Price, talking about that in his, he was, he's more interested in the arts and film. Um, and I remember, so Tom's on faculty or was on faculty at Ocker. And... I remember him um, just talking about, um, well, what, what, what approach, what toolkit did Jesus have? 
did he give straightforward answers or did he ask more, um, questions that left a pebble in the shoe of the listener? And so I think it's worth saying that, that there wasn't one single approach to how things were taught at Ocker because the faculty was different. It was probably overrepresented by the more kind of cognitive. Um, so you had the philosophers, you had the sciencey people, uh, and that lends itself to a particular type of approach because that's how they think, which is great. And there are people that think that way. And so there needs to be people that are speaking to that. But um, there are also people that are uncomfortable with the neat and the tidy answers. And if you give them one, they're going to be repelled by it. And so there needs to be people like Lauren who are, Lauren is a wonderful writer and engages in the complexity and the mystery in a way that people find, okay, I'll give this a second hearing. Um, and so I think that it's worth saying that it wasn't like this one approach. There were many approaches to how things were taught um, at OCA. That reminds me, there's this, there's this quote by W.H. Alden that I just love so much and it just encapsulates everything you're saying about mystery and it's that truth like love and sleep resents approaches that are too intense and I think many people have experienced apologetics as this gotcha kind of rhetoric game and for someone like me and Steph or several other people who are there learning if God is truly that simplistic and dogmatic, then it kind of begs the question, is he really God? Yeah. And I think that that's something that um, um, I was listening to a podcast by um, my friend, Joy Clarkson, who um, we, I know that a couple of us met in Oxford. She was interviewing Malcolm Guyte, um recently. And they're talking about Piranesi, Susanna Clark's new novel. And they were talking about, the, the role that fiction plays in in assisting people to um, engage in kind of an imaginative supposal. So, okay, let's sus suspend our disbelief, as Coleridge says, and inhabit a world and just try it on for a bit and see if it makes sense, not just of, in itself internally, but of everything else. Um, and that kind of sense approach to sense making is something that um, I know that that's what's um, presented in Bailey's work on reimagining apologetics. And I, I love that he talks about um, two of my favorite authors, um, Marilyn Robinson and George MacDonald. Um, but I think that that's why I loved um, the Two Cities series on the arts, because I think that the kinds of questions that people are asking a question is not about what, well, and this is the big caveat, is that the kinds of questions that people in my circles are asking, that's a, that's a big caveat, are questions about is it good? Is it, is it beautiful? And um, that requires a different approach, and I think that's the approach that Lawrence described. But I would say that I think that that's different for different communities um, with different histories and different stories, um, and that's something I know that Claire, that's Claire's experience. Um, the utility of, of equipping people with the intellectual credibility of the faith that they believe. That's crucial. Yeah, I think um, I think I mentioned before I had a rude awakening in 2020 just because I think having um, had this really immersive training experience with Ocar 
seeing you know um, people I respect on the ground in the trenches doing this sort of campus parish ministry and also doing the, the thinking behind what they believe and then going into 2020 with George Floyd and then seeing I'm talking top level uh, apologists and um, not really able to, to to respond to the question of let's say racial injustice adequately was just but what I will, I'm not going to lie it was a complete shock to me because I love this discipline um it's really grounded my faith it's really equipped me um but just yeah just this <laughs> rude awakening I'm just thinking are we are we serious um because I think and this is something I will be investigating further hopefully in September when I start my PhD I do think and I think we talked mentioned it before and I think it was in um the podcast with um, Bailey as well. The enlightenment roots of, apolog of, of um, apologetics, actually, um, the philosophy out of which it is born was one which um, described the rational man and the rational man was not the African. Okay, let's just be clear about that. When you look at Kant's writing, when you look at Hume's writing, they have quite a lot to say about the African and it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. Um, Kant did sort of change his perspective later on, but by then, as far as I'm concerned, the damage was done. And so it is no wonder to me now, when you look at where you saw classical apologetics model is coming from and the kind of presuppositional apologetics, um, sorry, propositional apologetics, questions to do with racial injustice. Um, yeah, <laughs> there are some real, real, real problems in the way that it can or can't approach it. And so that's why I've been really engaging with things like urban apologetics. I don't know if you know Dr. Eric Mason. There's a whole crew of urban apologists in um, America. True ID podcast, Adam, Adam Coleman, um, Zion McGregor. Um, yeah, just, just this great book called Urban Apologetics. Definitely recommend it to you. Um, because what they do in that book is look at groups of black people in America, and it's happening in the UK. I'm sure it's happening around the world uh, where you have black majority communities you have black Christians leaving their faith um, because of racial injustice. They see that Christianity, or they believe that Christianity is the white man's religion. They're seeing the church not being able to use the gospel, which is the most redemptive tool we have to, to, to look at questions of injustice. And they're leaving Christianity and going into what we call black consciousness religions like Nation of Islam, Hebrew Israelites, um, Kemeticism, so looking at Egypt, um, Egypt sort of Egyptian myth and saying that's what, what black people believed um, before you know um, empire and, and colonization and, and leaving and so this is where it gets tricky for me as um, an aspiring apologist and Christian is that if we say that all questions matter if we say that every person matters um, but suddenly apologetics as a discipline chokes when it comes to the question of race I, I don't know what's going on um, and we, we see that in all of the, the fuss that is made up, all, all the fuss that is made over Black Lives Matter, say the name, uh, the sentiment, but not the name, critical race theory, you know, suddenly the biggest threat to Christianity in the West. No one wants to talk about Christian nationalism, though. Um, all, all of this stuff is happening. And it's like, meanwhile, people from the black community in America, in the UK, are leaving Christianity. And the same critics do not have the resource, dare I say, the inclination to come with me 
and, and speak to um, Dwayne, who's left Christianity for Hebrew Israelites, you know? And that for me is a massive problem. And you're not gonna get to the root of it until you do the hard work to look at some of the epistemic injustice or some of the, um, the roots of where classical apologetics as a discipline comes from, enlightenment philosophy and see how that kind of is kind of played out am i saying that your classical apologist today is a racist please hear me i am not saying that but i'm saying it it, it demands it warrants some um investigation as to why um you see you know some quite big names um in apologetics today really just dismiss the question of um racial injustice and it is having a damaging effect. I've had emails, I've had requests from people, can you come and help me? My friend is now a Hebrew Israelite. They've gone to Nation of Islam, that you know, the turn to, to black atheism, and we, we call it black atheism because it's a type of atheism that is born out of questions about racial injustice that Christianity doesn't seem to answer, and therefore they leave for to believe in, well, but not, not um, to kind of have this well, seemingly neutral position. And it's just shocking. I'll stop. I'll stop. Um, I'll get off my soapbox now. But I think that apologetics is such a great tool, but we need to do our homework. Um, and 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 you know what? It's confronting. You know, it's confronting. It's going to take. I think a, a huge repentance piece, which I'm not pe- sure people are prepared for. But I'm not sure. <laughs> and Claire, I think that that ties into conversations that I know that we've had, um, all three of us have had, around the need for Christian witness to be localised, embedded in the needs and the the lived experience of a particular people with a particular place. And that's the stuff that you've, I know that you've spoken about around urban apologetics. Um, and I know that, I think, I think it's Rowan Williams who talks about um, the, the need for witness and how you present the gospel to be parochial again, um, because where as humans we need to embrace the limits that God has um, placed on us as creatures, which is I grew up in Sydney. I live in Sydney. I was raised in Sydney. There are particular aspects of my where I'm embedded um, physically, geographically, culturally, relationally that only people that I have this deep knowledge of a place um, can equip me to speak into the nuance of the questions and the, and the reservations that people where I'm from have. And that's something that I, that I really love about, for example, the work of Wendell Berry, his theology of place, is that you need to deeply inhabit where you've been embedded um, and that will equip you better um, to speak. <clears throat> And this is where the question of can you have multinational apologetics bodies um, and how useful is it having, having, having you know, international ministries? Um, and that's something that I know that we've spoken about before as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think that there's analogies with any kind of international, multinational kind of entity like I used to work for a large law firm for example and there are benefits of that you know you have access to resources um, 
Sometimes it's more efficient getting stuff done because you have streamlined processes. You have the competitive advantage of, well, I'm going to allocate, you know, that person can cover that kind of topic. I'll cover this kind of topic, whatever. You also have more credibility and standing, and that gives you a seat at the table at things. Um, you've got more money, so you can you can set aside time to do that kind of thing. Um, and that, I think that that translates from, you know, the legal industry into apologetics. I know that we've seen that. Um, for example, I know that Arzadeem was doing a lot of funding of nascent um, ministries in Europe, for example. They really cared about supporting local ministries to do that kind of work. But as always, the same for natural persons and the same for corporate persons, which is that your strengths can also be your weaknesses, which is that, well, yes, you've got resources, but maybe they're, they're extrapolated up to such a high level that they're no longer particularised to the ecosystem that you're in. So you've got great access to resources, but they're um, probably not tailored enough to the needs of your community. Um, you know, you've got standing to fly around the world and get a seat at the table with all these political leaders, but you're not known. You're not known by the people um, that you're speaking to. And so, you know, when you're talking about um, kind of classical um, tools of rhetoric and persuasion, you know, you've got the um, logos and pathos, uh, ethos, and um, you, you're really relying on your, your standing, but it's kind of like a bit removed. You've got this removed, so people don't know who you are. They don't know your character. Um, and I think that that... I think that that's where the piece around, um, you know, apologetics industry um, that I know that um, Professor Panna was critiquing on a previous episode comes into play because, and I will, will say a caveat here that I think that a lot of the apologetics industry is pretty US heavy. It's not, doesn't really have the same, it's not the same thing where I'm from. I don't know if you agree, Chris. I I, I, I can barely name a handful of ap apologists. I think I think it's certainly changed over time. Um, so I'm I remember a period where it was much more like the US apologetic scene, um, and a lot of apologists out of Sydney, uh, Sydney Anglicans, sort of sponsoring apologetics in places other than Sydney because there's a presumption that. Uh, it, you need some help. You need a leg up. Yeah. Well, th that the rest of Australia was a, a bunch of heathens. Um, but it, it's one of those areas <laughs> that I do find interesting in that, um, and Claire, Claire and Steph, you both touch on this, is that uh, even in uh, Anglo apologetics, um, if we use that term, um, or, or the mainstream of apologetics, a lot of people I know who have had significant questions, you know, they go along to an apologetics event, they get some answers to their questions, but then they their home churches are still woefully under-resourced. They still don't have the capability to to um, engage in the, the next set of questions that stem from uh, the inquiry that they've done. Uh, and I know I've... Um, several friends who have given up on their faith not because of for lack of questioning uh, but because of the local lack of answers um, and it's it's one of those areas that I, the 
almost having the the itinerant answer giver um, plays into is that they they don't have any embedding in in that local community and they're not resourcing the community themselves in the long term. Um, and uh, and we talked about this briefly when we talked about um, uh, Asian American responses to the Atlanta shootings. Uh, in that uh, in the Asian mindset, uh, Asians are often taught not to take up space. Um, and so in the same way in the apologet in, in a public sphere such as apologetics, uh, many minorities are taught not to take up space in those areas. They're, uh, they're, they're hegemonic sort of spaces. Um, and so therefore it, it becomes either something that is completely set aside and therefore you do see uh, as you're saying, Claire, uh, that shift for for many people of of color towards uh, other groups, which s seem to to support their uh, the questions that they have, or um, it's just buried in many Asian um, contexts, it's just buried under the carpet. Uh, you just don't ask those questions. Yeah, and I think that that I think it's an interesting development where you've got apologetics as kind of this standalone qualification whereas I think probably the best forms of apologetics are done when you it's kind of a side gig to uh, a an existing um, line of expertise that you have so for example I think part of the reason that John Lennox is so effective is because he has expertise that he speaks from he's not trying to be a generalist in everything, he speaks from his from his existing expertise, um, and so part of you know I wonder if it's better to 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 have that approach to apologetics, so rather than having an itinerant generalist that answer all the hard questions, you have you know you have this because I think what I'm trying to say is that I think that when you have this standalone qualification, which I think I think had its genesis in the States. I'm not, I'm not quite sure of the history, but it seems to have that kind of flavor to it. When you separate subject matter expertise from this whole venture, you, you, you amplify the risk of saying dumb stuff. And I actually remember um, Peter Williams um, from Cambridge, who's a textual criticism guy. I remember him saying, I'm not sure if you guys remember, but he had these like, he had these tips, tips for young apologists. And I remember him saying, if you're interested in defending the New Testament, go learn Greek, go get informed. And he said, you know, don't trust, <laughs> don't trust what you read in, you know, Christian apologetic literature because um, it's usually out of date research, usually is infected by confirmation bias, um, you know, it's probably overconfident, selective. And he said, don't bear false witness. So I thought that that was really interesting that here's a guy who, you know, he's, a, he's an expert in his trade. And so he's saying, be careful about being this journalist that goes around, uh, uh, you know, answering people's questions when you're not abreast of the actual, the latest um, research. And I think that as the, in the apologetics industry, um, it's really important to keep together the people that are doing this deep dive academic work with the people that are trying to communicate that. Um, and when you separate that, that's where things get dangerous, I think. 
Um, and that's more likely to happen when you when you're itinerant, I think. I, I think that's also a trend that we see in broader society uh, that um, people, and especially with COVID um, and the COVID misinformation, uh, and even well-meaning COVID information. Um, I've seen ministers on social media and uh, who ha- have been, you know, say, questioning uh, the efficacy of PCR tests for detecting coronavirus, have no idea as to how a PCR works, uh, apart from what they have Googled for 30 seconds and hit Wikipedia, which says that a PCR is there to detect DNA strands. Uh, and therefore it's a virus, so it's RNA, and therefore it can't be detecting um, it can't be detecting coronavirus. So therefore everything's wrong. Um, it, it would seem to me that this is a categorical error uh, of people stepping outside their, their subject matter expertise. It seems to be a feature of our culture at the moment rather than just a um, feature of apologetics. Um, in, in each of your spaces, how would you... Uh, approach those sort of engagements of um, people speaking outside of their uh, SME? I think that's a really good point you make. I, I think um, one of the tutors at Oka, I really, um, the real takeaway I got from him was that the language that you use when you're explaining something, it, it should be, um, this is like the best explanation or um, this is a cumulative case for the, the truth of Christianity. So just the language you couch things in shouldn't be absolute. This is proof of that, or this is, and I really, really appreciate that. And I can see, because, you know, science is not <laughs> science. The science and faith debate is not my area of expertise. And no matter how many books I read, I'll never be a scientist. I've never, you know, practiced it, but I can hold my own, I guess, in a discussion. But I think, having that nuance in how you frame what you're saying um not to kind of back down from your position because i think um well we know that everyone there is no such thing as a neutral position everybody is occupying a worldview no matter how neutral society may try to make it look i do think though the way that you speak about um your truth claims <laughs> needs to be um nuanced and and i think people pick up on that and i i did get to see um some quite um, impressive is not the right word, but I was really quite taken by some discussions that you'd see some of um, the tutor apologists having with, you know, your average person on the street and engaging in that sort of one-to-one discussion. And I think a little bit like, I think Steph and Lauren were saying that like the, the Q&A where you're on a, on a stage and you're, you have a mic and you have to answer a question and be really profound, there's so much pressure. <laughs> um, a lot of us preferred when you were having a coffee with someone that you gave a flyer to and then they came back to an event the next day and you were able to to speak to them one-on-one um, and just learning how to listen to them and also how to present um, the gospel in such a way that wasn't trying to um, impose an idea but get that person to engage and think and as, as to why that you, a, a rational human being, think that Christianity is the best explanation for reality with what particular question that they're asking you or engaging with. Um, So I think that kind of humility um, is really important. And I have seen, I've seen on social media as well, I'm sure I've done this myself. Uh, I hope I've never, I hope I haven't done it recently, but I've seen on social media where you have maybe like a minister preaching and then they've read one sort of apologetic fact and it's, it becomes this this thing on, on and then the church is hollering and it's eh. 
and um, it could have been kind of presented in a little bit more of a nuanced way. Um, yeah, I just think humility in saying, well, I'm not actually an expert here, but such and such person writes about this and have you thought about that? And could this be, could this make the most sense of that? I think is, is, is quite powerful. Yeah, to Claire's point, I would just add on that seeing um, practitioners and experts in their field speak about other experts and the limits of their own knowledge in certain fields. Like there were plenty of questions we posed in lecture that ventured outside the realm of the topic that the speaker would say, I don't know about that. Read this book or ask this person. And I think in a place like Oxford, you're going to get a lot of hubris and a lot of arrogance in certain places of people that are puffed up and act like they know more than they do. But I think in our encounter with the program, there was a lot of humility and willingness to admit what was not known or other areas to explore or room for mystery. And that really influenced and affected a lot of, I guess, our communication techniques and the way that we speak about our faith in contexts where there are a lot of people who have had bad experiences with Christians or um, have deeply held beliefs uh, because of obstacles that are intellectual or otherwise. And I think having a real sensitivity to that is so important. And I, I really think that's what people sense about you first and foremost, when you begin speaking about God or spirituality or any of these things, it's what is this person like? What is their credibility? What posture are they taking in the conversation? And are they curious? Are they genuinely curious? about what's happening on the other end of the conversation. And people are very intuitive and they feel that out immediately. And I think most anyone that approaches apologetics needs to have that in mind first and foremost, because um, people can spot when there's just a power dynamic going on or an argument to be won. Yeah. And I think, Chris, to your point about um, this is not just isolated to apologetics. It's not just isolated to the the Christian um, the Christian world. I think you're totally right. I think that um, there is the impact of you know the usual things, twenty four hour news cycle. You've got social media, and the impact of that on people's attention spans, which does affect the kinds of engagement across difference that you can embark upon because if it's the case that you've only got like a 20 second TikTok or what I, I'm not I'm technologically a Luddite so I don't, I don't really know how these things work but if you've only got a 20 second soundbite there's only certain kinds of arguments that can fly in that context and I think that and there's been a lot of you know, people that are smarter than me that have written about the impact of that on compounding polarization, which makes us even more adversarial in our common life than we already are, which is really, it's really problematic, which is why I like Rowan Williams. And I remember I was listening to him speak on this polarization and partisanship. Um, and he spoke about, we're speaking different languages across difference. Like so that we're not even hearing what the other person is saying because it's, it's all, you know, garbled to us. And he said, even though someone may be speaking another language, let's try and find the common 
the common grammar in another person's syntax, even though they're speaking another language. Um, and so I think that being mindful of that's that's the context, that's the ecosystem in which we are trying to communicate about ideas. Um, and so maybe maybe it's that we don't try and do debates because there's only there's not like the long form ideas that you can unpack. So when we're talking about, for example, you know, Old Testament and you know the fact that you, there's a lot of legwork you need to do in order to understand that, that text, and that doesn't lend itself to a quick pithy one liner. So maybe we should just try a different approach to how we explain um, why we believe that Christianity has intellectual credibility. Because I do think that that's still an important part of the piece. So as a, as a final question, you know, that we're closing out our series on apologetics with this conversation. Some of the things that were brought up in our conversation just now is how, you know, the questions are different in different contexts and the questions have changed also over time and being attentive to that is, is really important. And one of the things that are really kind of budding now is, you know, is Christianity just, uh, is, is Christianity a white man's religion, is Christianity misogynistic, you know, is, does it sort of lend itself towards nationalism and, and these sorts, these sorts of things. And I'm wondering, um, you know, especially also in light of, you know, the recent scandal with RZIM, that the issue of like, is Christianity just, of course, is, is right there on the surface as well. And I'm just wondering, uh, as you think about the future of apologetics, um, what gives you hope and, and where, where do you want to see apologetics move forward? I think that what's happened with the RZIM scandal is not a new thing. This is an age-old story about what happens when people try and make a name for themselves. And I'm not saying that everyone in in that organization was about that, but I think there are risks that you, you open yourself up to when you do not subject yourself, you do not submit yourself to an accountability structure. Um, and I think that that's something, that's a risk that is amplified um, when, well, I mean, apologetics, part of me has been, throwing the idea around about does apologetics lend itself to be more about the form of the thing rather than the subject matter or the content of the thing because you're trying to it's about how you package ideas you're like a middleman between the experts and you're trying to communicate and so I think that there are certain risks when you're trying to build yourself a platform that lends itself into the age-old story of people making a name for themselves which is something that the Bible talks a lot about, about the risks and the harms of, and the potential harms of doing that. So I think in part, and this is what's, you know, it's not just isolated to apologetics, it's, it's in the church as well. Like I think that those of us who have been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, um, wherever there are people in power that aren't accountable, that they don't belong to a people that is local, that they don't, open themselves up to that accountability structure is bad. It's really bad. And I think that's that's one of the things that I think in terms of the, the learnings that we can have from this. Um, I think that part of it is a governance issue. And I know that I've spoken with you, John, about this and Lauren as well about 
Uh, so I work in the charities space at the moment. And I think that one of the things is that, you know, you see in this is just a failure of due process and governance structures. Um, you need to have checks and balances because whenever there's power that's unchecked, things go badly. Um, so I think that that's, that's one of my reflections. I don't think it's isolated. To, um, I think that it's something that you see in churches, in church denominations, um, and it's because we're human and humans have a propensity to stuff things up and to abuse power and having those checks and balances in place in our local communities is something that we, we need we need to prioritise as a matter of urgency. That's, that's one partial thing I'd say. Lauren, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that it's definitely gutting when, when news like this comes out. Um, for a lot of us, some of us more than others were exposed to, to Ravi's teachings and theology and, um, knew him personally to various degrees. Um, and it's, it's definitely been a process personally for me after the news came out, I, I had already been, you know, through the apologetics training that I'd had deconstructing various things about my own theology that needed to kind of fall away so that I could have a clear understanding of who God is. And when, when news like that surfaces, it's um, really a blow to your trust systems within the Christian world. And so I will say that it, it has had a fallout. It has had a cost um, to those of us who are are connected still to the ministry and have many friends and uh, mentors who are very negatively affected by this. Um, there's definitely a, a lot of um, disappointment, anger that results from, from things like this going wrong. Um, yeah, it's really tricky. And it goes back to the question of the celebrity apologist. And when your character is your platform and your character is the thing that falls through the floor, it becomes really tricky to think about these platform kind of venues and this level of fame and how, I mean, how to gauge how coherent is this person to their own fame and how drunk on power is this person. It's, it's really, it's really tricky. Yeah. And I think that that's also something that, when when fame and celebrity come into the mix, I, I think that your plausibility structures can be so intoxicated intoxicated by that that fame and that celebrity that you you fail to you fail to see stuff, uh, and you fail and you fail to and that's that that's exactly why checks and balances and corporate governance structures exist because we know that. We know that those things happen. We know that when there's a compelling person in on a platform that we're less likely to ask the hard questions or believe or take complaints seriously. And that's why you need those structural things in place. And, and that's partly why I think that um, I was talking to my, my brother um, recently. Um, he's an Old Testament um, lecturer. Um, and we were, we were discussing about what's the what's the role of apologetics, if at all. And he was saying, well, maybe maybe it's like you know, you just need to equip your local pastors better to answer these kinds of questions. It's kind of like having a good GP, a good general practitioner. 
who who knows generally across the field but knows where to where to put people but is embedded in communities and knows the people I think that that's something that I've I've been wondering about right and maybe maybe that's partly the itinerant piece coming into play if you've got this person who's here there and everywhere and there's no sense of you know belongingness to community and to a church uh, authority or kind of oversight into speaking into this person's life and and holding them accountable to their patterns or whatever it is. Um, there's it's much easier to mask issues that are going on behind the scenes when you are uh, always on the go. No, I think you make a great point there about equipping the local church, and I think that is one of the ways in which the you know the the scandal can can be redeemed if anybody else is the right way to talk about it, is that the dismantling of this celebrity culture means that the, the apologist is now serving in their local community, serving in their local church. And as, as Steph said, during our training at Ocker, we were challenged, attend a local church. You know, Ocker is not your church. Um, when we were attached to the university, the university is not your church, go to church. So serve in the local church. Um, and actually, it's been interesting to see um, some of the former Ozodime employees be, becoming pastors, which I think is brilliant. I think those churches are going to grow exponentially. No, I'm not talking about just bums in seats. I'm talking about in their in their in discipleship. Um, and my final point would be, in terms of being accountable, I actually found that when everything was going on, um, it made me more accountable to my non-Christian friends. I actually... A lot of my friends knew what I was doing, slightly didn't, but I actually sent them a message and explained what was going on, sent them to the website, read this, and we can talk about this. And it, it actually led to some really fruitful discussions. And so I think um, that accountability, not just within the apologist to a, a minister, church accountability group, blah, blah, blah. I think too, to be honest with your non-Christian friends, say, yeah, we got this wrong here, badly wrong. and um, what is in the gospel to redeem or what is in the gospel to to bring about justice i think is quite a powerful discussion that can come off the back of what we've seen well uh steph lord and claire thank, thank you all so much for for joining us and uh sharing a bit about your experiences and and some of your uh hopes and and, and visions for uh what apologetics can and, and ought to ought to look like so just appreciate having you all with us thanks guys thank you guys been awesome thanks so much john and chris it's been a pleasure to to debrief with you all <laughs>